Welcome to the Brilliant Podcast. I believe this is going to be around episode 75, and this is basically a, uh, one of the conversations we're having in, in what we're going to call our heretics um, section. And and for me, you know, heresy, and the reason why it's relevant in the anarchist context is because as unorthodox of a, as a, of a political perspective as anarchism is, in fact, the nature of large groups of people, the nature of sociability, is that certain patterns, habits, uh, orthodoxies do set in over time. And I think that probably I would say that this anarchism of the past 10 years has been increasingly encouraging a type of orthodoxy. And of course, the easiest and best example of that is the way in which Antifa um, strimmed down the anarchist program to be one of just being in reaction to fascism or to, you know, more realistically local fascists in your neighborhood. But, um, but in moving on past that and moving on past that type of orthodoxy, one of the questions or one of the points of contemplation for me has been this idea of which, which of these orthodoxies do I, do I encourage? Which of these orthodoxies do I like? And which do I basically think are a waste of time? So in that context, we're going to talk to a longtime Bay Area friend of mine named Cody, and we are going to talk a little bit about how they came to their unorthodox um, perspective. And um, yeah, how's it going, Cody? That's going good. How are you? Not bad. Um, so I guess when you began, you probably began as an insurrectionary anarchist. That probably was the first word you used to describe yourself. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think that at first, uh, you know, of course it was just anarchist. And then of course, once you start to get into the lexicon of the different labels, um, or the adjectives like, yeah, insurrectionary anarchist became the one that, that resonated the most with me. And what did you resonate with with an insurrectionary anarchist perspective? Well, I think that, like, um, you know, I grew up in the Bay Area, and one of the things that actually uh, affords you, um, especially when you're, you know, I'm 30 now, and then I was probably 14 or 15 when I really got into anarchist stuff, um, but went to my first protest when I was 13. Um, what was it? Uh, it was the 2003 anti-war march. Um, oh, oh, right. Yeah. Oh, of course, yeah. Yeah, totally. So right. So you, you got to experience you got to experience San Francisco shut down as like yeah. your first event. Yeah, it was it was incredible. Um, it was incredible. <laughs> yeah, and I think that I got into it largely through the punk scene um, in the Bay Area, and yeah. So one of the things that I, I was able to garner from that, going to book fairs and whatnot, was uh, you know the first anarchist stuff that I really read was Batano. Um, and so for me, it's like reading Alfredo Bonanno and that's still something that is kind of a, a cornerstone of my, you know, I think everyone's favorites for the most part. Uh, it just really cemented a, a very anti-left anarchism from an early age. Hmm. It's surprising to me that you'd say that because of course my first experience of you was being in the uh, circle of people around Modesto Anarcho. Mm-hmm. whose definition of insurrectionary anarchism was rather different than Alfredo Bananos. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that my reading comprehension was great. <laughs> 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 but uh, I'm, I think that, you know, and that's one of the things with those texts is that you can, they're almost like these wells that you can go back to, and there's just different things that you can pull from it depending on where you're at in your life. 
Uh, and for me at the time, it had this, uh, this uh, unapologetic like movement forward, like this very aggressive perspective. And growing up as like a you know really poor kid in the Far East Bay, it was just something that resonated on not wanting to wait around for like the promises of politicians and to like solve our problems. So I think there's a continual thread through those things. Yeah, and that that of course is one of the best things about the the Modesto Anico project was it sort of unapologetically not waiting around. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I I have a lot of fond memories of that project for sure, and I wasn't like a key contributor or player in it, but I I helped make copies. <laughs> Your fingers were blackened. Yes, absolutely. So. Um... Uh, at some point, you became a bit more of a theory head. Was mm-hmm. that because of an event? Was that because of just inclination? How did that change for you? Well, for a while, I actually lived up in the Northwest in, in Tacoma. And, you know, I pretty much like this was during a lot of the port militarization resistance and the shutting down of the ports in, in the Northwest um, in response to like the war. And did you get to see Jeff Munson? Uh, yeah, actually, I did. There's some, man. I saw him turn around an entire line of riot cops. It was wild. Yeah, that is intense. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and so I think that for me, the theory part started to become, I mean, I always really loved reading, and uh, I think that the thing about it is that theory was always inextricably like linked to, uh, to, to academia and to school, uh, and I, I really didn't like school. Um, couldn't do it uh usually in high school i would actually be uh reading things like uh stuff of wolfies or banano like in my you know 11th grade history class instead of doing my work um so i I think that for me yeah the the theory side of it was always pretty pretty linked to to the anarchist like thought process to me and then yeah eventually i did get a lot more into the complex like political theory stuff and where did you go from like where did you start um, I think that I really started uh, in theory. Uh, one of the things that really got me down that path was in 2007, 2008, when I was re- uh, living in the Northwest. So we got the first copy um, that I ever got of Call by the Invisible Committee. Um, and there was kind of this just this way of talking in it that really kind of gripped me. Um, and... Yeah, I started like really thinking about not only the like what am I doing, but like why am I doing it, um, and how does this actually affect the way that I go about my day to day life and the relationships that I have with the people around me. So, for me, you know, my feeling about the Invisible Committee, um, and and it was more or less vindicated when I went to France and had this conversation with some of the people who are involved in the Invisible Committee. So. My strong impression of it from day one was that it was absolutely in the tradition of and echoed the the basically the whole pedagogy of the of the Situationist International. Mm-hmm. So, as someone who you know who I sort of like recognize as like a post Invisible Committee type of a person, and a person whose worldview has been largely framed by basically Invisible Committee and to a lesser extent Takoon. Did you ever go back and do a deep or meaningful reading of the Situationists? Um, not a particularly deep one. I mean, I definitely you know, read, read the hits. Um, you know, what Society are the hits? Of, uh, Society of the Spectacle, of course, is the one that pops up. And then um, 
did then just did some cursory reading around that uh but largely and you know again this was another testament of being in a strong radical scene is a lot of the ideas i was able to glean and a lot of the information i was able to take in was through having conversations with people who were you know who would say the same thing but like you know a lot of this sounds like uh the situationists and then we would have these conversations and and that's where a lot of my my kind of touch point like points of reference with the situationists did come from yeah I, I mentioned this because from the perspective of engaging with the invisible committee as a text um there are other texts that do a lot of what it is that they do as well if not better and and i think that that a dialogic understanding of these things actually is a is a kind of a fundamentally different way to engage with them and it's a different thing as it turns yeah. out so so as an example if the only text from the SI that you've really uh, grappled with is De Boer's Society of the Spectacle that's the SI at its most Marxist mm-hmm. and and frankly the Marxism of the SI has lots of weaknesses to it and and frankly you know from my perspective should be criticized uh, harshly yeah. whereas you know the invisible committee while they do lots of like turns of phrase that are not so dissimilar from marxism in fact they they claim at least to to, to not be a marxist project mm-hmm. and and um there was a lot of si material that was not marxist that mm-hmm. by missing you actually missed where the where the synchronization and and maybe disynchronization actually uh lives um you know, a lot of the word, a lot of the, the the turns of phrase and the and the the way in which things were said were the work of the non-Marxists of the SI. So, I, I for your own edification um, and to not just sound like a uh, self-taught intellectual, you might want to actually go back to the books and and read some of the, that that source material. Because oh yeah, absolutely. In my in my opinion, it's it's very good. Well, no, I I say this because you know a, a lot of I know where this conversation is going is is a conversation about like how can someone read a foreign text and make it real for themselves mm-hmm. and you know my answer to that is do it a lot rather than just do <laughs> rather than just do it a little and mm-hmm. you know I know that you love the invisible committee and sometimes you sound like it yeah totally I mean yeah and, and I get that and I think that that's something that's definitely evolved in my process is I do have like my my criticisms of of the writing and, and of the text and uh I also would assume that you know the the most Marxist people of the situationists wouldn't be the most creative people um you know with like the turns of phrase and whatnot and I mean I, I definitely have some of those books on my shelf that I need to need to crack open but um yeah so, of course, you know, the real reason that we're having this conversation is because around the time that you went to Tacoma, um, you know, some of your friends fell in love with another family of ideas mm-hmm. that have been as influential for you as the Invisible Kennedy, or nearly as influential, I would say. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it would necessarily be around the time frame of Tacoma, because it actually did start happening um, also when I was kind of like late in high school was... Uh, I first started reading uh, Renzo Novatore and, uh, you know, Bruno Felipe. And so, you know, it was like Towards the Creative Nothing, Rebels Dark Laughter. Read them front to back several times. Uh, and those were kind of 
those are actually the texts that really springboarded me, I guess more so towards the theory even before I ever received any of the Invisible Committee texts at all. Um, right. Yeah, I mean, those those are just, they're such incredibly transformative books, you know. Um, but they were passed to you as texts that are important in insurrectionary anarchism. But in fact, they are texts that are, for you know, to some greater or lesser extent of individualist anarchism. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, in the in the Bay Area at that time, um, you couldn't, like, th those things were so closely next to each other uh, that kind of seeing that, that stretch happen between those two kind of camps, um, it wasn't until, you know, you started seeing a lot more of the uh, activist projects of the insurrectionary anarchist kind of milieu uh, that did you see, like, that split of the more individualist strain, um, at least in, in, like, the world that I interacted in. Um, the way that I put this, and I don't know if you've heard past episodes of uh, the podcast, but mm -hmm. is that basically this is when insurrectionary anarchism in the United States became its own phenomena, mm -hmm. because to refer to activism and insurrectionary anarchism in the same breath in the European context is pretty laughable. Um, it's only sort of in the U.S. where, there, where there's such a deep anti-intellectual um, tradition where, where it's possible to read uh, Bonanno and decide to do some activism. Of course, yeah. no one call, no one causes uses that word. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's the crux of it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that with uh, people like Renzo Novatore, it's like, you know, that's, that's such this unabashed, like, again, like, unapologetic style of anarchism. And in it, he you know, talking about the ways that, uh, you know, the, the two classes or that the, uh, the great working class destroyed each other in world war one, like, and essentially like laying, laying bare and being like, you know, is this your class struggle? Like, is this the revolutionary mm -hmm. subject? Um, I mean, it's, it's still gripping. It's like the kind of thing that can still give me chills. And, and I think is, uh, is the, an amazing text that I regularly go back to. So, you now have two chunks of textual knowledge in your head. Mm -hmm. How have you reconciled these two things? Yeah, you know, I think that as I got more into uh, the theory stuff um, with, you know, as I, I'll just call it the French stuff, um, of the Invisible Committee stuff, uh, the two things that these perspectives have in common is largely this, like, asocial aspect of it, is that both um, the individualist anarchism of someone like Renzo Novatore and the way that the Invisible Committee group will talk about society is as this um, large entity that, that seeks to dominate, subjugate, and flatten everything that it comes in contact with. Um, and that is something that, you know, of course, I still hold that to be my position. Um, and so that's where I started really seeing different parts of myself kind of in each of these kind of uh, perspectives, like become like, as they became more elaborated. So, okay, let's talk, let's dig into this a little bit because anyone who has experienced the invisible committee on the ground would have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah. Because most people's experience with the invisible committee is basically as a movement kind of a group, a group who's absolutely involved in, boots on the ground, what we would call activism in the U.S. in the French context. Mm -hmm. So you're talking about a distinction about, 
like you're talking about a critique of society that they that they have that you feel like is similar to how an individualist would critique society. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I would say that that, that that's right, and I think that when it comes do, do you to ha, do you have some chapter and verse on that? Uh, chapter and verse. Oh, not off the top of my head. I was uh, trying to okay. minimize my amount of chapter and verse at the moment. That's fine. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that uh, even as I continue to read their uh, their writing, you know, I just um, we read the last chapter of the new book now for our reading group, and and the last chapter is this this really like scathing uh, takedown of. Uh, modern society is actually this uh this enforced collectivism um to where they talk about how if capitalism is anything it's like the the collective uh you know the collective putting forward of a situation and of making everybody's lives the same and of this like great flattening um and i think that as you see those kind of perspectives involved in in movements and whatnot it's I don't know if from their end because I don't I don't really know many of these people. If it's like more of a strategic pull for them to try to like, you know, help create a, a situation in which power or, or police state or whatever becomes more destabilized, or um, or if it's more of a kind of ideological this is what we do kind of thing. Yeah, I guess I'm. I, I guess what I'm looking for is, um, you know, anyone with. Um, even a cursory understanding of the European political climate knows that by and large, those people that describe themselves as either individualist or insurrectionary anarchist are pretty deeply at odds with uh, the invisible committee on the ground. By and large, I think in the U S we attach ourselves to texts and use those texts to bludgeon each other. Whereas it feels to me like a lot of uh, my friends in Europe um, their the way that they beat each other up has to do with sort of activity on the ground, and so um, uh, most of these European insurrectionary anarchists would say that their experience of the Invisible Committee is absolutely one of flattening people, absolutely one of of creating a um, uh, a party. Yeah, and you know, I think that this actually gets a little bit further along uh, to kind of the point of where I'm at with these two positions, is that I don't, I don't see any of either of these positions being, you know, the correct position. But what I actually find the most interesting is kind of the pull and the space between these two things. Is that on, on the one hand you have, uh, you know, experiences like that, which you know I I don't have a, a lot of uh, communication with people in Europe, but. Um, yeah, like, like that's like kind of the space where life begins to be lived, where like different intensities and different ways of of living life come come to the forefront, and those those conflicts are are good conflicts, um, and that is that's really what I find the most important about these two positions is they they essentially force me to think in two different ways and and to kind of interact with ideas that maybe I normally wouldn't interact with if I held myself to one camp or the other. Does that make sense? Um, I, I'm not. I'm not sure. I mean, I mean, we're going to tease it out over conversation <laughs> because obviously, uh, I read deeply of both of these traditions. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, in fact, am unlike. Well, 
Um, uh, so, so I guess, so it, on the one hand, you are heretical because you fuse these unfusable pos- positions and sort of keep them both at hand. But on the other hand, it seems like the way in which you do it is not necessarily uh, particularly intellectual, but is instead more like you read the thing and you get a feeling from it and you live with that feeling. Yeah, and I, I do think that that's, that's essentially... I think that's correct. Like, um, the both of these positions, they, they actually, or perspectives, ev- evoke a type of emotion from me, for sure. And I think that... Uh, it's it's sitting with that and not trying to always find the correct answer between the positions, um, but to, to interact with like that kind of like push and pull of the individual because this is what it comes down to is the individual versus the collective, um, you know the individual and society, uh, and I guess I don't I don't see these perspectives as I see them as complementary a lot of times, um, but completely divergent at other times. Okay. Um... Well, let, let's get into some examples later on here, but mm-hmm. but but I do want to at least just put this in in the place of talking about your life. Um, you have you now do an intentional rural project that um, that is sort of captivating your life, and um, what are the aspects of it that you feel like you draw upon the individualist tradition for? Um, I think that one of the the individualist uh, tradition, um, the the creation of your own value, like finding you know what is important to you, uh, and like going after it unapologetically and and kind of creating yourself, is the part of the individualist tradition that I just find to be extremely empowering. Um, that also, that is a, that is extremely abstract. I have no idea what that means when you talk about an <laughs> intentional rural land project. Um, so, you know, the, first off, the, the first thing that you have to do if you decide that you're going to move to like a rural area is to say, you know, I'm not going to chase after a, a job that has long, meaningful anything, uh, essentially doing some pretty things that people in your family or, or other friends you may have, um, who aren't radicals would think is crazy. Uh, and so I think that that element of creating your own value of the, of the life that you want is, is where it becomes more concrete. Um, cause you're living in a, in a very largely non-traditional way in the U S it's a very weird thing for people in the U S to be a young, young person who decides, Hey, I'm moving to the country and I'm going to do a, a small farm. So that, that's where that comes in. Yeah, but that's not individual you made that choice with all the people you're doing the rural land project with yeah but i think that those like individual choices can happen and find other individual people individuals who've made the same choice or will make the similar choice and that is how you go forward with that i mean yeah i I guess like the tension between like the collective and the individual like in this sense is just um it's understanding that you can make individual choices and also work with other people in that aspect. Okay. I think you're still staying in a pretty abstract place, but but that's fine. <laughs> I'm sure we'll get to it. Well, I mean, I, you know, again, like what I like, 
So, of, of course, you know, my goal here isn't to say don't read things that you disagree with. I absolutely think that we should yeah. all be reading disagreeable texts and digesting them. It's one of the reasons why, you know, I, I'm not exactly a free speech absolutist, but I am <laughs> more in the favor of free speech by and large than I am in the favor of what I see when I see people eager to shut off free speech. By and large, when I see that happen, I see a certain kind of personality that I absolutely don't want to be like. Yeah. So, so it's like uh, it's like a negation. Um, yeah. Anyways, so, <clears throat> um, I guess for you, when you think about these perspectives moving forward, first of all, do you think that there's any effort uh, that's worth making? in creating a sort of theoretical American position that integrates both of these things? And then second question, um, what do you think these things will mean to your life in the next five years, in the next 10 years? Yeah. Um, so the first question is, is there a value in, in essentially kind of mashing these things together into an American context? Um, I, I think that, you know, it's, and then this is actually kind of one of the things I want to keep, uh, going to with this is that, uh, I think that these perspectives end up playing out in, in a way that's not so theoretical, a way that, that is very like how people live their lives. Um, and that is what I find the most attractive about both of them. And so I do think that, um, you know, there is this aspect of the individualist perspective that, says, you know, I will, I will, like, I will create my own value, um, that anything that gets put onto me, like as, as a, a form of domination, as something that tries to, to subject me to it, that that is something that you can, you know, uh, be aggressively opposed to. Um, but at the same time, I do think that there is this envisioning of once we get to that point and we are these like individuals who, who live life in this way and, and want to build our own forms of value that we interact with other individuals that have done similar things or, or maybe even different things um, that want to build some sort of autonomous life and creating the necessary networks and connections with those people uh, to, to build each individual's power and thus build more collective power. So you don't sound like a, an individual anarchist at all to me. You sound like oh. a tycoonist who, who lives nearby some individuals, <laughs> anarchists. Um, and, and I'm, so I'm curious, you know, not that you have to accept my, my chat at you, but, mm -hmm. but I'm curious, um, if that's the case, which I truly believe it is, um, why do you keep the artifice? Like, in other words, what attracts you to individual anarchism? today outside of the texts outside of the texts um i think that much of the world that interact and first off i totally reject your jab um but i think that most of the world that interacts with the tycoon or the invisible committee ideas uh are are positions that have largely find their ends in academia um they largely uh find their ends outside of the similar anarchist tradition that I, I grew up in and that I hold to be valuable. 
But all um, of the all of the other Takuni or Appleista projects in North America sound exactly like yours. I mean, they like uh, you mean in terms of like the land project. Yeah. Yeah, I mean they 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 could very well be similar. Um, you know, I mean, I think that uh, a lot of people have the idea of moving out to the country and growing food. Um, it isn't just you know Appleista or Invisible Committee type people or. Uh, individualists or anything like that. I mean, uh, but, I would say but you, that all... But you, speak in a, you do speak in a jargon. You realize that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that most of us do. We speak in some sort of jargon to the community that... You're responding to my to my criticism of you personally by saying that other people do the same thing without mm-hmm. responding to the criticism of you. Yeah, so with jargon, I think that it does come from a perspective of, uh, you know for a long time, like interacting with a specific type of, of scene. Uh, and so you kind of speak in this way that has these assumed definitions and mm-hmm. this assumed language uh, that is definitely something that has to change when you, you know, move out of that scene a bit. Um, but I guess, I guess my question to you in this context is mm-hmm. like you've, while of course you have some friends that are in this same space and, and, you know, who you talk to, I, it's not large enough to, for you to have much of a benefit of using this language. Yeah, I mean, it's just, I think at this point it's the way that I'm used to talking about things. Then that you know, language will my language will evolve as I interact with new people, as I <laughs> interact with new ideas. I mean, that's, that's the nature of language. Have you had any? Has your group had any direct communication with any of the other uh, Appalachia type groups around the U.S.? Um. Loosely, like very loosely, nothing, nothing extremely strong or anything like that. Yeah, I don't. That's too bad. Yeah, I mean, yeah, to to an extent. I mean, I think that those connections will happen over time. But I also, uh, at the moment, you know, living where I live, it's like I, I want to like be here. I want to be connected to here and the people here. Uh, and you know, I'm not looking. And I wouldn't even call what I'm what we're doing as like an Appleista project. Um, it's a project that can take the form of the people who make it up and, and others, other people become a part of it or move through the space, like the space changes. And that's, that's actually like the, the theory heavy part of like egoist and individualist thought that I find to be, um, the most compelling and the, uh, I guess the part that like informs a lot of my individualist perspective which is, you know, that of, like, the creative nothing, like the continually uh, building and self-destroying singularity or entity that exists. Um, and that's that's what I appreciate about uh, individualist thought, but also about a lot of the more kind of postmodern, uh, I guess, like, tacunacy stuff. Yeah, but I guess what you're saying on the ground is that you're not actively recruiting for your for your group. I mean, I'm not saying that the East Coast Appalachians are, but but uh, but your sense is that you're a static set of people at this point. I mean, for right now, but people like already like other friends and and people who I've known for a very long time like have moved through the space and you know use the space as a place to go to. Um, so I don't, I don't think that it has to be uh, defined necessarily that way. I guess the difference between a group house and the way in which a group house isn't static mm-hmm. and the way in which a project where some people live 
I guess I'm trying to understand it. Are you like one or are you like the other? It sounds like you're more like a group house. Um, I mean, yeah, until our friends need it, you know? <laughs> it's, uh... Yeah, I guess, like, these these are, like, the two kind of definitions. These are, like, very rigid things to, like, put, uh, to put, you know, a piece of land that people live on. And it becomes, it becomes of use to, like, uh, the people who are close to us who need it. And it is as open to them as I hope that their own house would be to them. Um, so, yeah. So you're saying you're more hippie groovy than you are actually a political person? I am... A little bit more hippie groovy than I am a political person, sure. <laughs> wow. I'm, this is a shocking revelation. Yeah, I know, right? Um, I don't know. It's like a, I want to like get out of this like trench, you know, this, this little quagmire we're in mm-hmm. of, um, you know, when, when I read something like, uh, like, uh, towards creative nothing what i get out of it is this idea this ahistorical position this this position that says that like that interacts with the world and one of the things that i absolutely loved about um uh when jason and wolfie did uh sterner's uh sterner's critics was the part where they start differentiating the concept of property and, and properties and you know really talk about uh, property is being the things that create a person at any moment. Um, and that's like kind of what the kind of individual has are these things that make them up and those things like build up, they fade away and the person is always changing. Um, and it's from that, that I really take a lot of my inspiration with individualism. Um, and that leads to things like this project. Uh, and so I, I guess like there's this there's this uh, perspective in, in both of those things that I find to to support that, if that makes any sense. I, say more. I mean, um, so, like for for me the for me the topic of property is is all is very complex because I when I read theory I'm always trying to map it to the reality that that I live in and I've never found a way to map the conversation around property to the life that I live in. Yeah, personally. absolutely. Um, do you want to say any more about that? No. I, well, I mean, <clears throat> yeah, just mostly I, I feel like I don't experience – I don't know many people who who think the world that they want to be and want to live in and then make it happen by force of will. So, you know, most people that desire to live in a rural land project – spend a lot of time talking about living in rural land projects and and that's as as far as their will can take them that's as far as the property that they can create by and large when people do move to a rural land project as an example they do it because you know a very close friend has a chunk of money or they do it because of of a a a collision of multiple people and multiple sets of resources. I believe in the in the 19th century, it might have been easier to say, I'm going to move to the country and you can do it because the way in which, you know, property laws uh, existed were different than they are today. And homesteading was still a, a real phenomenon. Um, I guess that's partially what I mean. Yeah, yeah. And I think that, you know, as we talk about, I mean, just a quick, like, thing on land projects in general i think that my interest in land projects isn't necessarily 
the the project itself so much as it is the uh, kind of breaking down um, the kind of intele- not yeah intellectual barriers that exist between ideas of a rural and urban um, that there is this separation of like the you know the urban radical and the uh, you know rural radical and many times they have a lot of things to say about each other uh, and and not seeing kind of like the value of both of those. Uh, the, both of those perspectives. Um, that's actually my interest in in land projects in general. Is, I don't know what you mean. So, the first issue of the Anvil had this incredible essay in it by Frere Dupont called the Abinarabi Effect. Yeah. And uh, do you remember this? Of course. Yeah. So I, I don't know. You do a lot of things. <laughs> so um, that essay had a really amazing overarching theme which is that the anarchist milieu or the radical milieu in general uh, has uh, it always has people who get older um, learn new things and eventually leave and and kind of you know are are just gone now and that there has never been uh, a way to have information kind of flow back like knowledge never flows back into the milieu it always flows out of it We've had a uh, we've had an open project for some time to actually tell the stories of people who have left. Yeah, and that that is such a like that was an incredible essay. I, I still go back and read it somewhat regularly, maybe like twice a year, hmm. um, because that is kind of one of the things that I'm interested in with land projects. Is it's generally the older people who leave and decide, hey, like I'm too old, like the city isn't cute anymore. Um, I want to start a land project and, you know, that's kind of the groundwork that's laid out for you. Uh, and so I want to figure out a way to, to interact with that and to actually interact with a space that doesn't just separate people who live in an urban environment and people that live in a rural environment. So that, that's a great idea. I, I have a hard time believing that it's true because my experience has been that there isn't such a great big huge divide between rural and urban, but instead between click A, click B, click C, click D. And so I <clears throat> so my guess is that you're going to give me an example or two of how you're feeding back to the city, but really those examples are just gonna be how you feed back to other members of your clique who happen to live in the city. Um, I think that it also is like I don't think that that's necessarily the example that I would want to give at all. Um, I think that an example that I would want to give is one that you you bring people into space that normally wouldn't interact with each other. Um, specifically where I live, there's a lot of people who um, who don't really care to go to the cities because um, they find them to be you know, large, disgusting, natureless places, which they are. Um, but also that closes off people to to meeting new people and to other experiences. And similarly, I have friends that live, you know, uh, in the Bay area or in the central Valley who, uh, kind of feel like they're, you know, they, they feel like the radical milieu is this large mess that they don't want to get involved in at all. Um, or they've kind of, uh, uh, minimized their engagement in it because of all the obvious reasons. Um, and it's been really awesome to be able to have those people, come up here and actually like build friendships with people that otherwise they would never would have met um, on both ends. Uh, and from that, maybe, you know, maybe 
people will start getting together and conspiring and making rad projects together. Yeah, okay. That sounds nice. <laughs> I mean, it is nice. It's it's wonderful. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, and I, I really like, you know, I think that one of the projects that I've been really inspired by lately is the Backwoods Project. I think that what Bellamy and those folks are doing is a great, great project. Yeah, I mean, they have that separate intellectual tradition of permaculture that they can sort of be critical of, which makes it much safer in the anarchist space to appreciate it because, of course, it doesn't uh, implicate us. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, but yeah, I guess, like, for, for me, there's been much of the talk of these two different tensions is, and, and that's actually, like, the, the key of... of the pull between these two ideas is the tension that exists between them. Um, that's largely where my mind's been at when I think about it is that, you know, neither of these things have to be correct, but they're both like inspirational things. Like as you, as you move forward in life. Um, Cause I would say that with a lot of the people that I know and that, you know, that are like egoists and individualists, like um, I get along with them pretty well. And I actually talk to them more and interact with them more and, and probably more interested in what they're doing than I am a lot of the more kind of like pure kind of tycoonisty projects. But I mean, that's a little unfair because, uh, um, you know, the dominant characteristic perhaps, uh, in terms of intellectual rural perspectives would be a sort of collectivist communitarian kind of perspective that, that, airs more in the in the epilista direction whereas you know the general american tendency is sort of leave me aloneism which of course uh meshes quite well with uh egoism yeah i mean i would say that 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 can but i i think that as i mean egoism is a it's a much more intelligent position than many people give it that most everybody gives it credit for uh, and that's one thing that I've definitely seen is that, um, you know, I have to explain to my friends that are like, you know, uh, more Appalista types that actually I have a lot of sympathies with individualist anarchism and egoism. Similarly, I have to do the same with the other group. Um, I mean, it's interesting in this conversation that mostly we're talking about the social environment that these ideas live in mm -hmm. rather than talking about the ideas themselves. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, the reason that I sort of uh, elbowed you in the direction of articulating what an American version of these are is because I'd like to see that. I'd like yeah. to see either you write down ideas or people who sort of share some of these ideas with you articulate what this looks like and means in a U.S. context. Yeah, and, you know, I think that's definitely a project um, worth undertaking and that um – I'd love to talk to you more about just kind of your, your ideas around it. Um, not necessarily to do it together, but uh, I would definitely like to listen to your thoughts on it. Um, yeah. I, I mean, at the very least, I'd love to see what, you, what a backwoods West coast looks like. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Uh, you know, and, and kind of going instead of permaculture, instead of permaculture, you have marijuana. Yeah, I know. Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and, and I think that, one of the reasons I love living where I live is uh, being able to call up and like go hang out with Wolfie. Um, he's one of my one of my favorite people. I mean, I absolutely love his his thought process, his work. Um, and there's a lot of really really intelligent and bright people up here. There are 
that have been wonderful, like uh, living around. And I think that with uh, with these two two positions that we're talking about, this this ind- invisible committee stuff, and then um, you know individualist anarchism, is that these these positions they they don't agree. They're not congruent um, in any way that you can neatly package them together. But because of their asocial aspect that that I I've garnered from them from both of those positions. Um, I really, I really don't understand that in the context of the appeal. Well, I think that at least they're writing. Like, I can't speak much to the people's actions. I don't know them, but, but they're, in their but, writing. Go ahead. But their fir- their first rule is find each other. Yeah, I mean, I, and I think that that is, I think that's something that's going to happen regardless. Like, it, egoists find each other and then call it a union of egoists. I mean, it's. It's it's just such a to me that's such like a moot point. You might mean something uh, unorthodox in terms of your definition of a of antisocial or asocial. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't mean antisocial. I don't mean to 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 atomize yourself. I I mean to like to be out to be away from society to be outside of of larger capital S society. Um. And I think that it's I would love for these two perspectives to actually engage more, but it does seem that the that there's so much, you know, of course, bad faith because of definitions and words and all of those things in it that uh, you don't really see them engaging seriously. Um, and I, I do think that that's something that I, I would love to see more is that these these ideas actually like battling out a bit more. Where would you begin that? Because it sounds like. Um, it's possible to do that in like a journal. Yeah, yeah, it would be. I mean, like I said, I would love to talk to you about ideas uh, for this okay. kind of stuff. Um, yeah, and so when I when I think about like the perspectives that the these two perspectives, it's it's definitely the tension between them that I find to be the most important, and that the disagreements that are possible, uh, and I think maybe even not. Maybe even just different ideas can come out of that conversation. Well, what's an example, again, in the U.S. context, where you've seen that disagreement come out and you felt like both sides have been improved by the disagreement? Um, you know, outside, outside of conversations and, and just friendships that I have with, like, other individualists, I actually I don't see the, the positions uh, ever necessarily interacting very much. Um. On the web, but on I don't I, I don't do it. <laughs> that's, that's bullshit. Well, no, I mean I do like the internet. I've been just... I've been connected to you on the internet for ten years. No, I mean absolutely I do the internet. I'm not going to be here and say like oh I don't do technology. I do the internet. I just don't do it for political anything. Um, you have I have and and it's a bad place for ideas. <laughs> um, that's fair. Yeah, and I, I think that that's like the other uh, part of this is what I'm most interested in um, is both the social, you know, the social implications and how these things work themselves out uh, socially, uh, but also the anarchist space um, has become a, like a really hostile place to ideas. And when I say ideas, I, I actually rely on, on Bonanno for it. Uh, in the anarchist tension where it's, he says that like you know ideas are these things that have the ability to transform life and when I first got into the anarchist scene it was 
a space that I found to be full of transformative ideas, um, ideas mm-hmm. that once I interacted with them, I, I couldn't look at life the same ever again. And I think that with both the, um, the invisible community perspective and the uh, individualist perspective, I, I would call those perspectives ideas. They're full of ideas of transformative things, not just opinions, um, which Banana would say are flattened ideas, but like actual things that have weight and have something at stake with them. Yeah, that's great. I totally agree. I, um, you know, as you may know, I, I assume you know, <clears throat> we have been for now uh, two years, we've been doing a biannual uh, gathering here on the mm-hmm. West Coast. And uh, uh, the next one that we're having, which is in September, is pretty near you. Mm-hmm. Are you and your people intending to go to that? Oh, absolutely. And my understanding is that last month, or maybe even this month, um, Earth First is returning to the West Coast, Mm -hmm. and they threw an event for sort of that return. Did did you go, or did any of your close people go? Um, I'm not sure the event you're talking about, but Uh uh, yeah, I did go to a gathering that was uh, just a camp out that was really wonderful. There was no nothing around it was like a earth first return or anything, but uh, I think it was, yes. might've been just organized by the, the new earth first people. Yeah. I mean, possibly. I mean, th- there's definitely a lot of really awesome people there or very interesting people. I don't know if they're awesome yet, but. And were there <laughs> any, t- any takeaways of that, that, that feel like they're worth sharing? Um, that I think my big takeaway from it is it is, and, and I, I'm like that you brought up the concept of the gatherings because, uh, it is so much better to hang out with people face to face was my actually big takeaway. Cause I'm sure that if I would have talked to any of these people on the internet or something like that, it would have just been a shit been, show. Yeah. It'd be terrible. But like when you're face to face with people and they see you there, there is almost this, like, I'm not going to say a natural, like not a natural empathy, but people generally don't want to assume you suck when they meet you face to face. And if you're yeah. like, uh, and I think that that's just so integral to to what we need to be doing um, is actually spending time with each other. Yeah. Yeah. And I, of course, really like the idea of more or less informal gatherings where there isn't necessarily a tight agenda. I mean, I would also attend something that did have a tight agenda. But the idea of, um, you know, walking by strangers campfires and feeling like you're invited to join the circle. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think that one of the odd things about uh, the radical milieu, or uh, not even the radical milieu, but just the world now, is that everybody, there's almost this uh, puritanical uh, requirement that if you were going to be part of such and such group, you have to adhere to their to their bylaws, to the, the way that they need you to act. And it's almost like, uh, you know, if democracy is anything, it's like this uh, perpetual attenuation of conflict of trying to die down every conflict and sometimes you're going to hang out with people that you absolutely don't agree with but that doesn't always mean that they're your enemy and yeah i think that we live in such an enemy driven society now that uh it's it's it doesn't feel like a good way to build any sort of life did you die off uh i don't believe so Oh, okay. That, yeah. that, was, that was an incomplete sentence. But, uh, <laughs> um, um, so the, 
the, the, the takeaway, you know, is, of course, that my construction of trying to talk about heresy is is an artificial construction. And part of, partially why I'm thinking about it is because um, Peter Lamborn Wilson has written on the topic mm-hmm. and I really like what he had to say about it. But on from my own perspective, and Wolfie also uses the terminology a lot, but from my own perspective, I think that I, I see heresy as maybe like the the problem that I would experience of my own, which is that I'm a round peg that never fits into all the square holes that are around me. Mm-hmm. And and in that way, you know, you do continue to be a heretic, but you're not a heretic in the sense that you have this um, uh, coherent perspective that is at odds or, or in some sort of contestation with other coherent perspectives. You know, by and large, you are ultimately a social person. You you know, you do get along with people and, and you like to get along with people. Um, and, you know, like right now, of course, uh, the perception would be that I'm in, in um, uh, contestation with all kinds of different anarchist people who you're friends with. Mm-hmm. And and I imagine that, that your conversations with those people oftentimes are about the fact that you um, perhaps you're less a heretic and more a rabble rouser or <laughs> or or, you know, a version of a troll. <laughs> I think that, I mean, but I wouldn't say. Sure. <laughs> I mean, I think that the trolls, the, the concept of trolling really, it really tries to get a negative reaction. Um, but I just always want to be questioning my premises. I always want to be like, um, you know, asking those rhetorical questions of like, you know, what, what does it mean to live a life as an anarchist? Um, and I don't I'm thinking, think I'm thinking of a troll more in the sense of those those pencil toppers with the, like oh, the right. wild blue blue hair. It's kind of where that, my hair um... is at now. Once you move to the rural areas, you don't get haircuts. Um, yeah, and I, I think that the the role really is is that we always need to be continually question, uh, questioning what we're doing, why we're doing it, and and how we do it. Because once you start resting on those laurels and you start building like an an ideology that starts to create all these different kinds of abstractions starts to uh turn into this activism this humanism these doing things for the sake of doing them um so i I think that when it gets to that point that's when i start you know sounding like an, an egoist again uh so yeah thank you very much for having this conversation with me yeah absolutely